Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Brothers and sisters, please do remain standing and turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel chapter 2. 1 Samuel chapter 2, we're going to be looking at verses 27 through 36. And it's 1 Samuel chapter 2, verses 27 through 36. Uh, please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. Then a man, came, uh, a man of God came to Eli and said to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt in Pharaoh's house? Did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense, and to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? Why do you kick at my sacrifice and my offering, which I have commanded uh, in my dwelling place, and honor your sons more than me, to make yourselves fat with the best of all the offerings of Israel, my people? Therefore the Lord God of Israel says, I said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever. But now the Lord says, far be it from me, for those who honor me I will honor, and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed. Behold, the days are coming that I will cut off your arm and the arm of your father's house, so that there will not be an old man in your house." And you will see an enemy in my dwelling place, despite all the good which God does for Israel. And there shall not be an old man in your house forever. But any of your men whom I do not cut off from my altar shall consume your eyes and grieve your heart. And all the descendants of your house shall die in the flower of their age. Now this shall be a sign to you that will come upon your two sons on Hophni and Phinehas. In one day they shall die, both of them. Then I will raise up for myself a faithful priest who shall do according to what is in my heart and in my mind. I will build him a sure house and he shall walk before my anointed forever. And it shall come to pass that everyone who is left in your house will come and bow down to him for a piece of silver and a morsel of bread and say, please put me in one of the priestly positions that I may eat a piece of bread." Uh, brothers and sisters, thus far the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord and ask for His blessing on the preaching of His Word. O oh Lord, help us to see the reality of Your judgments, that they are severe, that they are not to be taken lightly. But Lord, help us also to see the, the, the glory of your grace that shines forth even in the midst of your judgments, that we might understand the need to repent because of your judgments, but also the great blessings that accrue to those who do repent in light of your grace. Help us to see these things, O Lord, that we might love you all the more. For we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. One of the things that we see in Scripture is that often uh, some of the major promises in the Bible are actually embedded in words of judgment. Uh, there are a number of, of examples of this. Uh, you know, the prophets will often speak a word of judgment, and yet they'll also make it clear, even in the midst of that judgment, that God will bring about salvation through the Lord Jesus Christ. 
Isaiah chapter 3 is an example. There is a, a long list of judgments that are coming against the people of God. And then in the midst of it, Isaiah says, but tell the righteous it will be right with them. It will be well with the righteous. Even in the midst of all the judgments, God is able to save his people uh, from uh, their sins. Uh, you could give uh, Isaiah chapter 7 through 12, the whole thing as an example. There are judgments that are being pronounced against Judah because of their wickedness. And yet also all throughout, there are all these great promises as well. And the point is that the people of God are to be humbled under the, under the judgments, but they're not to despair. They're never to despair because there is a reality of great promise, even that comes in the context of judgment. Now, probably the most significant example of this is, in fact, the very first gospel promise. We often think of uh, Genesis 3.15 is the first gospel promise, and it is, uh, where the seed of the woman is, is, is said that he will crush the head of the serpent. And yet it's important to remember that that very first gospel promise comes in the context of judgment, that God is actually addressing the serpent to judge him, and then addressing the woman to judge her, and then addressing the man to judge him. And it's in the context of the judgment of the serpent that this promise is even really in some ways implicitly given in the sense that uh, the, ju the, the judgment against the serpent is itself the promise for the people of God. And so what we're seeing is that there are, in the scriptures, it's a normal pattern for there to be promises of grace made in the context of judgment. Now, something similar is actually happening here. There's a man of God who comes to bring a word of judgment against Eli. These are uh, very, very difficult words uh, indeed as we think about uh, what is being said to Eli. You know, your house is going to be wiped out. Your two sons are going to die. The house, the house of the Lord is going to be, uh, be put in ruins. There are going to be enemies within that house. All these things are going to come upon Eli. And yet, in the context of that judgment, God says that he will raise up a priest after his own heart. And even, even it's, it still even continues in the context of judgment in the sense that to Eli it said, your sons are going to beg from this priest in the sense that they're going to have all their privileges removed. And yet, still, the, the fact that God is raising up a priest after his own heart is, is in fact, the great uh, gospel promise that comes uh, in the midst of judgment. That, and the, the, the point is implicitly being made, if you turn to this priest, then all will be well with you. All will be well with you. There will be access to God that you will yet uh, still enjoy. And so we see then, in this passage, as we see in so many other places in Scripture, both the severity and grace of God being magnified at the same time. We see both God's justice and on the one hand and also on the other hand, His mercy and His love. Now, if you remember the, the context, I know it's been a couple of weeks since we looked at 1 Samuel. Uh, you remember, though, what we looked at uh, last time, uh, two weeks ago, that this passage comes immediately after this contrast between Eli and and Samuel, or more particularly, Eli's sons and Samuel. And there was a, a displeasure that we see, we see uh, with Eli and his house in that his sons were sinning in, in grievous ways. And on the other hand, uh, we have the description of Samuel as the faithful priest. So Hophni and Phinehas are the priests who are not faithful. And yet, on the other hand, there is Samuel who is God's faithful priest. We're going to see uh, how in uh, the next chapter, in chapter 3, that Samuel is actually called as a prophet and Samuel continues to rise. And uh, what we see in this portion of 1 Samuel is that the, the rise of Samuel is recorded as the house of Eli declines. And in this passage, we have the, the record of God's prophecy against the house of Eli, 
which is going to begin the decline of his house, even as the house of Samuel uh, rises. Now, the way in which this passage is structured is we have in verses 27 through 29, the sins of Eli's house are recounted. Then in verses 30 through 33, we have the punishment of Eli's house for the sins and then uh, the sign that all this will come to pass in 34 uh, to 36. So that, that is a pattern of sin punishment sign. And the promise, the gospel promise, comes in the context of the sign that is given in verses 34 uh, through 36. And so we'll follow that order and that structure as we move through the passage. Uh, look with me again then at verses 27 through 29 as we look at the, the sin of Eli. You'll notice in verse 27, there's a man of God who comes to Eli. Uh, a man of God is the, the kind of the generic title for a prophet in the Old Testament. And this man is anonymous. We don't know uh, his name. And he comes to give a, a word of the Lord against the house of Eli. Now, it is a very significant thing to remember and to, to notice that the judgment comes against Eli and not his sons. Something we, we pointed out briefly two weeks ago, but it's important here to notice this because this is when the judgment is actually recorded. Notice, in the record and the recounting of the sins of Eli's house, in verses 11 through 26 of chapter 2, the emphasis falls squarely upon the sins of Hophni and Phinehas in the sense that they are the ones who are sinning greatly. And yet even there, there are little hints that it's actually Eli who's not, uh, not sufficiently keeping his house. And notice then, God does not send the man of God to Hophni and Phinehas. He does not send the man of God to Hophni and Phinehas. God sends the man of God to Eli. And this is another great re reminder of the need, the need to, to take parenting seriously. We're going to come, come back to this um, in just a, a few minutes. But, but the idea is, is that there was a significance, uh, there was a significance to the sins of Eli um, that's seen in the sins of Hophni and Phinehas. He did not have control over his uh, own house. Now, an another thing that we saw a couple of weeks ago is that there are certain things that can make sins worse than others. So not all sins are equally uh, grievous, is what our catechism teaches, but by reason of several aggravations, they can be made worse, we are told. The point is that there are certain circumstances, certain kinds of sins that, that make sin certain sins worse than others. And uh, you'll notice that in the recounting to Eli of his sins, the thing that is focused on predominantly is in fact the privileges and the benefits that Eli and his house had. That's actually most of what is said about his sins. So in, in regard to, you know, what, what was your sin? Well, your sin is that God took you out of Egypt. God gave your, your father's house uh, all of these great benefits. He allowed you to serve at the altar. He allowed you to participate in these sacrifices, even to benefit by them. He allowed you to do all these things, and then you did this. And it's all of that first part that makes the sin so significant. And so then uh, look at me again in a way, what's being said. Uh, uh, he says, first, did I not clearly reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt and in Pharaoh's house? So the idea there is, is that uh, there was a benefit that Eli's family had received uh, during the time of the Exodus. And this would have been common to all the Israelites. So what, what, uh, what is being said here by the man of God is that basically you were part of the people of God who received this wonderful salvation out of slavery to Pharaoh. And God revealed himself, particularly to your father's house. You benefited like all of the Israelites did. And the point is, is that merely being an Israelite 
means that there are certain responsibilities that you have to obey God. That, that's the point that's being made uh, uh, there in verse 27. But then the privileges for Eli's house actually goes beyond just those baseline benefits of the people of God. Not only did, were they a part of the people that received salvation, the only people on all the face of the earth at this point who had received the salvation, but then we are told further, did I not choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to offer upon my altar, to burn incense and to wear an ephod before me? And did I not give to your father's, uh, to the house of your father all the offerings of the children of Israel made by fire? And so the point is that within this special people of God who had received this great salvation, the house of Eli was also a part of the Levitical line. And they were, being Levites, they had special privileges. They were the most privileged of all the tribes of Israel. Now, even further than that, the house of Eli was a part of the line of the priests within the tribe of Levi. Not all Levites were priests. Only the sons of Aaron were priests. Eli was of the house of Aaron. So he is a part of the most special people on earth. He's a part of the most special tribe of that special people. And then he is a part of the most special group within that special tribe, within the special people of Israel. Uh, such were all of the privileges that Eli had received and all of the privileges that he and his family had received uh, from God himself. And what this meant for him was that he had a right to all the sacrifices. Other people had to give sacrifices and they were to be consumed. Uh, but Eli and his family actually got to partake of the sacrifice in the, in the sense that they actually uh, got to eat part of the sacrifice and no one else could. So they were actually supported by the sacrificial system themselves. God had given that back to them out of his grace and kindness. And it's in this context then that, that the prophet is saying, and then you honored your sons more than me and you, and you, you did not honor me before them. And that's the thing that makes it so worse. The point is that the prophet is saying, how could you sin against God when God had done all of these things for you? If God had done all these things for you, why is it that, that then after all this grace that you've sinned against him? And the point is to say is that all of those privileges make the sins of Eli and his house that much more aggravated. They are in fact much, much worse. Now, the reason this is significant, brothers and sisters, is because it is important to recognize that the same principles apply today, and we have to recognize that if the priests were so blessed within God's people in the Old Testament, you must recognize that every new covenant believer is vastly more blessed than any of them. If, just to do a, a quick comparison between the benefits that Eli had as a priest versus the benefits that you have as a Christian, in the Lord Jesus Christ. Eli's house had a right to the altar. It's a great blessing. But we are told in the book of Hebrews that you partake of a heavenly altar, not tied to an earthly altar of this creation, but tied to a new creation where Christ as the anchor for your soul gives you access to God in the Holy of Holies. No priest in the Old Testament, not even the high priest, had that kind of privilege, not even close, not, not even remotely close. If, if you could say to the priest, uh, you, could have, you could have this privilege or you could have the privilege of having God himself indwell you and you, you having an anchor so that you are always in the presence of God, even in the Holy of Holies, or you can get to go into the earthly Holy of Holies, which is just a shadow of the real one. You can have that once a year. The answer would have been clear. He would, he would take 
he would take the privilege that you have because they are in fact so much better. And th therefore, this, this is the reason why in the Westminster Confession of Faith, it teaches us that the obligation to keep the law is even greater in the new covenant than it is in the old covenant. There is a greater obligation for us to keep the law in the new covenant than in the old covenant. And this is the warning, brothers and sisters. Um, if you hear the words of judgment, you recognize, you're to recognize that in this example, if you so sin, God's judgment will be even more severe. God's judgment will be even more severe. Uh, now, those are the privileges. Notice as well, as I mentioned, that these judgments come against Eli, even though it's his sons that were the ones who sinned. And uh, again, the point that is being made here is that um, Eli's failures can be seen in the failures of his sons because they are, are a reflection on his parenting. And because he failed as a parent, he is the one who is actually in some ways responsible for the sins of, of, uh, of his children. Now, uh, it is possible for a parent to, to do things right in general and for their children still to sin. It's impossible for the, the opposite to happen as well, for, children to be, for parents to be unfaithful and yet the children uh, uh, act righteously. Those things are possible. But the reality is, is that uh, very often, uh, the reason why children turn away from the Lord is because of the sins of parents. It's not always the case, but this, this is something to keep in mind, that there is a pattern. And the point of saying this is simply to say, brothers and sisters, that you, if you have children in the home, you must make, you must make the parenting of your children the highest priority. There, in, terms of, in terms of things that you do, no job, no, no earthly ambition, you know, no, certainly no hobby, nothing should supersede your striving to bring up your children in, in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. There, there should be nothing that, that supersedes that. There should be any level of sacrifice that is needed for, for your children to be brought up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. That needs to be done. One of the things that we see in the book of Samuel that, is that there is this recurring pattern of failures in parenting. Um, and we see this even with Samuel. Uh, Eli failed as a parent. We see that with Hophni and Phinehas. But Samuel actually had the same sins. He has the, the same sins in that uh, later we'll see in 1 Samuel that Samuel's sons do not follow the Lord. Clearly, Samuel's a faithful person. He's clearly a believer, and yet he failed with regard to the way in which he brought up his children. We, we uh, see this even with David. David ends up at the end of the book having one of his own sons seeking his own life. And that because of his failures in a number of different ways, failures in marriage, failures in parenting. We see this uh, even later after the books of Samuel in Jehoshaphat, who clearly failed with regard to his, his children, even though he was considered to be a good king as well. The point is that, is that this must be something that is prioritized. And note uh, two things in particular that, is, that are being addressed with regard to Eli, the way in which he failed. There is the idea of honoring God's, uh, the son, his own sons more than the Lord. Uh, so the idea is that, is that uh, because Eli knew about the sins of his children and yet allowed them to continue without addressing them sufficiently, that that is evidence that he was honoring his sons more than the Lord. Now, um, what this means then is that particularly this, the way in which Eli failed was with regard to disciplining his children. That, that was the way in which he failed. Now you'll note uh, in uh, a couple weeks ago when we looked at, at verses 11 through 26, you'll note that Eli did rebuke his children. So it's not even the case that, like, that you know, he had no idea or he chose to look the other way completely. 
He actually did tell his children. He told Hophni and Phinehas, look, what you're doing is bad and you shouldn't do this. Uh, God's good, and there, even there could be punishment from God if you continue down this path. But where he failed is that he did not actually restrain them. He, he did not actually cause the sins to stop. And the point is that while you have children within your home, uh, that's the kind of thing that discipline needs to accomplish. And, and basically what this would mean is very, very uh, uh, foundationally, is that when, when your child sins, and you say there will be this consequence for you if you sin in this way because this kind of thing is not acceptable in this household, that then what there has to be is following through with regard to the punishment. And that's really what, what Eli did not do. There were there was not consequences that, um, that showed that he was adequately addressing the problem with his children. And therefore, he rebuked them. They continued to sin. And God saw that as Eli honoring his sons more than honoring him. That is the warning. Now, uh, so discipline is the first thing. Notice the second thing is that there is a relationship between the way he parents and what he says about um, kicking against the sacrifices of God. So the idea is, is that you know, uh, the reason Hophni and Phinehas were uh, sinning, the, the way in which they were sinning is they were taking the best parts of the sacrifices for themselves, things that they had no right to. And then there was also the sexual immorality, as we saw a couple weeks ago as well. So those were those, those are the two main sins that they were committing. And the point is, is that their actions actually caused the people of God to despise the worship of God. And it showed, uh, Eli's lack of restraint of his children showed that he himself did not have a high enough regard for the worship of God either. And he allowed then his children to take his own sins with regard to the worship of God, his apathy for it, even further than he, than, than he did. And this is a great warning as well. As we think about the need to bring up our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, we've talked about discipline. Discipline must be consistent. But then the second thing that we see here is that there must be a, a, a prioritizing and a love for the worship of God such that you show by your actions that the worship of God is the most important thing in your life. And your children hear from you. They see it in your life and they hear from you that the worship of God is the most important thing. In terms of the things that we do each week, the worship of God is at the, at the top of the highest priority. Uh, if, if you are one who, um, who perhaps come to church, but it's, it's, you, you come grudgingly, perhaps you don't always come, there are, there are excuses that can be made for you with regard to your attendance, and you think, you know, well, this thing has come up, therefore I'm not going to go, and this thing has come up, therefore I'm not going to go, and uh, your children will be able to see, you know, maybe there are other things that you would not miss for anything in the world. And yet, church, you do seem to miss for some, for some reason. And the, the thing that, that communicates to your children is, is that the worship of God is not the highest priority. And so what will often happen then is that it looks like it's not the highest priority for the parents, and then it becomes not the highest priority for the children. And then they don't go to church. And there is this, this sense in which the, 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 the sin becomes worse with the children because of the example of the parents. And the exhortation, very basically, brothers and sisters, is this, that with these two things, you must, you must seek to bring up your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Being faithful with discipline, do not honor them more than the Lord. Seek out their repentance by, by showing them the, that sin has consequences. And then even after that, pointing them to the Lord, saying there is forgiveness if you turn to the Lord. Uh, sins ha sin has consequences, and then... Uh, disciplining them, and then also showing them by your example 
that the worship of God is the most important thing uh, in this world. And tell them that and show them by your example of always being in worship. Uh, do, not, uh, do not despise the worship of God. Uh, now, these are the sins that, of Eli that he had as a parent. And the punishment then comes in verses 30 through 33. And there are two, two main elements that come with regard to the punishment. And both of them have to do with the destruction of houses. So there is the, the, the destruction of his house in the sense of the destruction of his family. And then there's destruction of the house in the sense of the tabernacle. So there's the house of God. And then there's Eli's house, his house being, so to speak, his, his family. Uh, this, is, this is actually the thing that's promised to David, that God would build him a house that is a family. And that, that one who comes from that house will build God a house that is uh, the actual house of God, uh, the temple. Now, uh, with regard to the destruction of Eli's house, the judgment comes in verse 30. And the, the word is basically this, that there were times in, in the past when God had allowed uh, Eli and his house to, uh, to walk before him. That would be walking before him in the, the service of the tabernacle. But that will no longer be the case. And this is because God did not... Uh, Eli did not honor God. The basic principle is then given, those who honor God will be honored by him. Those who despise him will be lightly esteemed. And again, the result will be that Eli's house will be destroyed. This is it over and over again in this passage. At the end of verse 31, at the end of verse 32, and in verse 33, what is said is that uh, there will no longer be children that reach into adulthood and even further into old age. They will be cut off in the flower of their youth. And Eli's house will begin to waste away. One of the intriguing things about the destruction of uh, Eli's house, as it's, as it's described here, is the, the way in which it describes um, various body parts. The idea is that there's, uh, it's, it's almost like the destruction of Eli's house, his family, is the destruction of him himself. So his arms are, are being cut off, his eyes are wasting away, uh, his heart is growing faint. And all this is happening, the, the way in which it's being carried out is that God is, is uh, destroying his house. He's, he's cutting off the people of his household. And the idea here is that Eli did not parent his children well, and so the judgment will come upon uh, his entire uh, family. He did not honor, honor God as the head of his home, and therefore his home will be cursed. Uh, now, that's the first house. The second house is given in verse 32, where we are told that an enemy will be in his dwelling place. It is in, in the dwelling place of God. Uh, the, the house of God that is at Shiloh will be destroyed. Uh, we see that this begins its fulfillment in chapter 4 when the Israelites lose the battle of Aphek and the ark of God is taken into, into captivity. Uh, now, such is the severity of God against sin in terms of his judgment. I mentioned at the beginning these are very hard words. These are hard words of judgment that he gives. And it's important to remember as we read the Old Testament, there are many examples of judgment like this. Where it's important for us to remember what we are to receive from them. What are, what are we to be thinking about when we read words of judgment like this? We're to remember what the Apostle Paul said. Now, all these things happened to them as examples, and they were written for our admonition, upon whom the end of the ages have come. Therefore, let him who thinks he stands take heed, lest he fall. That is to be the response that we are to give when we hear these kinds of words of judgment. What do I need to repent of? Are there ways in which my life is following the pattern of even, perhaps even this godly saint sins? We're to recognize that it, even the godly do sin and we need to repent. We, we need to understand where our sins are and we need to plead with God 
uh, to, to bless us and to bring us to repentance. This is why it's such an important thing to pray regularly because we, we can often deceive ourselves with regard to our sins. It's so important to pray, Lord, search me, search my heart. No, show me what is in my heart because I, I don't want to sin and cause problems for the kingdom of God. Certainly, certainly it should cause you to want to pray this as you think about parenting within, uh, within the home. Uh, Lord, keep me from the kinds of sins that will turn my children away from you. Lord, please, please keep me from those things. Uh, please reveal to me where I am falling short and grant me repentance. Grant me repentance. Uh, that, is the, that is the way in which we are to, to receive words like this. Now, Eli is then given a sign so that he can know that all these things are going to happen to him. And just a, really briefly going through this, uh, Hophni and Phinehas will die in one day. We're told that in verse 34. This happens in chapter 4 uh, at the Battle of Aphek, where the house of God is also uh, going to be destroyed. At least the ark is captured. Uh, then we're told that God will raise up a faithful priest according to his own heart, and he will have a sure house, So as opposed to Eli's house, which is going to be destroyed. Uh, this faithful priest will have a sure house and shall walk before the Messiah forever. Uh, those then who are, are left in Eli's house will then beg for things from this new priest. The, the idea here is that not, not every single person is going to be cut off, but those who are remaining, they will be uh, reduced to begging for a small portion of the privileges that they had before. The idea is that this, this priest will have, um, he will have the, the privileges of, of partaking of the altar and Eli's children will be removed from that and they'll be begging just for a small portion of what they had previously had, which now belongs to this new priest. Now, in the midst of all of these words of judgment and all of this, this devastating thing said against Eli and his house, it is here in verse 35 that we have the promise of God raising up a priest after his own heart. And this is the, the, the grace that comes even in the midst of judgment. Um, it's important to note that this is the same description that's given to David. Um, we often think of the books of Samuel as being the description of the, the record of David, who is the king after God's own heart. And we've already noted how important kingship is within uh, the books. It's the, the primary theme. And yet, uh, before we get to, to kingship, God promises not just a king will be raised up after his own heart, but a priest will be raised up after God's uh, own heart. Now, who is this priest? Who is this priest? It's important to remember, as we think about this question, that uh, often in the scriptures, there are promises that are made, and there is some kind of initial fulfillment in a type, a person who partially fulfills the description, but who does not fulfill it all the way, which points forward then to another one who will fulfill it all the way, which is, of course, always the Lord uh, Jesus Christ. So it's important to keep this in mind, because as we think about um, those who may potentially be this priest after God's own heart, there are people whom the author wants us to see as the fulfillment of this, even within the books of Samuel. And yet, the author is also indicating to us, the same author is indicating to us, that this is actually not the great priest after God's own heart, that there is, in fact, another. And so the first one that we are to, to understand as being the fulfillment of this is Samuel. And we can see this even just from the structure of this chapter, you remember that in chapter 2, um, a couple weeks ago, verses 11 through 26, the entire point of that passage is to compare two kinds of priests. There's one faithful and one not. Uh, Hophni and Phinehas are an example of the, the unfaithful priests. 
And then clearly then, by contrast, Samuel is the example of the faithful priest. We're meant to understand Samuel as being the faithful priest uh, that, is, uh, that is being spoken of. And so then we'd have to think of that just as in some ways David is the man after God's own heart who's called to be king, so too Samuel is the faithful priest who's contrasted with the ungodly in the same way. He is the priest after God's own heart. And just as David is to be contrasted with Saul, so too now Samuel is to be contrasted with Hophni and Phinehas. But uh, even as we can say that Samuel is in fact the, the, the priest after God's own heart, we also understand that the author records Samuel's failures in such a way that we have to also recognize that Samuel is not actually the full fulfillment of this. Just as the same with David. Remember the, the, the book of, of Samuel going to end with David being sought, his life being sought by his own son, which is ultimately connected to his sins with Bathsheba. And the question is, is this really the man after God's own heart? And clearly he is in some ways, but also clearly in other ways he's not. And that leads us to expect there's going to be another king after God's own heart. Well, the same thing is true with Samuel. Just, 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 uh, just think about it in this, in this regard. All of these words of judgment are coming on Eli because of his failure as a parent. And yet the one thing that we were told about Samuel in terms of his weakness is that he failed as a parent with regard to his own sons and that they... Uh, did not follow in his footsteps, even as Hophni and Phinehas did not follow in the footsteps of Eli. So how could it be then if Eli was judged so severely for failing as a parent, and that then there's this contrast where it seems like Samuel is a faithful priest, how could Samuel actually be the, the culmination of what is being spoken of here by the prophet if Samuel had the exact same sins? How, how could he actually be the priest after God's own heart? He is in some ways, but in other ways, he is not. And this leads us to expect that God will, in fact, raise up another priest after his own heart. The author is telling us, as even in 1 Samuel, he's telling us there must be another priest after God's own heart. Now, another element of the fulfillment of this promise is with the Zedekites. So during the time of David's exile at the end of 2 Samuel, this is when Absalom is pursuing him, uh, there were two priests who remained faithful to him, and those were Zadok and Abiathar. Abiathar was of the house of, of, of Eli. Uh, then after David died, Abiathar sided with Adonijah against Solomon, who was the rightful heir to the throne. So the idea is that Adonijah wanted to be the king. He opposed Solomon being the king. And Abiathar, uh, who was faithful to David, sided with Adonijah rather than with Solomon. Uh, Solomon then comes to the throne and he spares Abiathar's life because of his service to his father. But he still removes him from serving as a priest. So he says, Abiathar is no longer going to serve me as priest. And then we are told in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse 27, that all of this happened to fulfill the word of the Lord that was spoken against Eli. So the idea is that with the removal of Abiathar, we have the removal of Eli as being Eli's house as serving as priest. And then there is then a, a new priest who serves in 1 Kings chapter 2, verse, 20, uh, verse uh, 35. We are told that Zadok, serves as priest in the place of Abiathar. And, and actually, even after this, the, the Zedekites are described, particularly in Ezekiel 44 and 48, as having been faithful to God when the people of God went astray. So in this sense, they are the faithful priests. There is the, the house of Eli that was unfaithful, and yet God did, in fact, raise up faithful uh, priests who were, in some sense, after his own heart. Now, all these things are true. However, the point of all of it is to, to point to the reality of the true and the greater priest who is the true priest after God's own heart, who is the Lord 
Jesus Christ. Um, he is the true priest to whom all the other faithful priests point to. All of the, the weaknesses of all the others uh, are, are really, um, they point to the reality of the one who will share none of them. In some ways, Samuel is a prophet like Moses. You remember that that's the description of, of the, the, uh, the coming prophet. In Deuteronomy 18, he'll be a prophet like Moses. Moses was a prophet, a priest, and a kind of quasi-king, uh, the only one of the kind. Uh, Samuel is something of, of the same. He's a prophet. Uh, we'll see next chapter. He's a priest, and yet he's a quasi-king as a judge. And, and he, you know, it makes the chapters, these chapters make clear that he served in the sanctuary as a priest. Uh, so Samuel and the Zedekites, the Zedekites, therefore, teach us what the people ought to have expected in the fulfillment of the faithful priest after God's own heart, that they would expect that there would be a Messiah who is a priest. Ultimately, as we see in Psalm 110, he is a priest who is more than just a priest, but will also be a king and also even a prophet. As Psalm 110 declares that the one who is the son of David as the king is also a priest after the order of Melchizedek. Now, in all these ways, God is showing, even in, in verse 35 of chapter 2, that his, he speaks words of grace even as he speaks words of judgment. Brothers and sisters, if you think about all these things, uh, the harsh words, the difficult words are meant to lead you to repentance. But notice as well, it is, it is not just the difficult words that are meant to do that. It is also God's kindness that is meant to lead you to repentance. God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance. To, to note that even as Eli sinned in all the ways that he did, that even so, God promised there would be this faithful priest who would come. And here's the, the great thing, brothers and sisters. The priest did come. God has sent the priest after his own heart. Even after all of his people were so faithless, they, 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 they were faithless and yet he remained faithful. Let God be proved true, though every man a liar. God was faithful to all of his promises. And therefore, the, the word that comes from this passage is this, repent, repent because of the severity of the judgment, but also repent because of the kindness of God, to know that, that he's going to accept you, that because this priest has come, the way to God, the access to him is now open. It, it is open. And because of this faithful priest, the people do not despise the sacrifices as in the days of Hophni and Phinehas. The, the worship of God is exalted in the eyes of the people because of the greatness of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you come and you, and you uh, come before this great priest, you also will have access to God. You, you will be able to have fellowship with him and you will be blessed as such. Uh, this is the word of promise that comes in this passage. Even in the midst of your sins, even as the judgment is being pronounced, turn to the one who is the great high priest. Fear God, turn to his son and marvel at the grace of God who has provided you with such a priest for your salvation. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we do thank you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and that he is our great priest, and he is the fulfillment of this passage. It's a, a wonderful thing that uh, uh, we have here a, a prophecy of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the priest after your own heart. How thankful we are that he has come. How thankful we are that, that uh, he is, uh, in, in fact, the one who is offering, who has offered once for all the sacrifice of himself to bring us to God, that he's able to save to the utmost those who come to you through him. Uh, Lord, 
how we do ask and pray that we would, uh, even in the midst of difficult words of judgment, and even where our hearts are pricked with regard to our own sins, uh, Lord, that you would yet look upon us with kindness, that you would lead us to repentance, that you would uh, help us to, to, uh, to see where we have fallen short, and simply to repent, O God, uh, grant us this grace, and may it be that we would uh, be led all the more to, to this as we consider all the blessings that are found in your Son. For Lord, did you ask this in the name of Jesus? Amen. Thanks for listening. If you'd like to find out more about our church, you can visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. If you've benefited from this ministry and want to know of ways you can help or support it, we'd like to make you aware of our new capital campaign to build a new building. God has recently blessed us with growth here at New Covenant. Over the years, our church has been small. It's gone up and down, but overall things have been tight financially and the church has been small. Now, by the grace of God, we are growing. We believe it wise in light of this to think about building a new building to facilitate even more growth. Our current building only seats 72. We cannot fit any more seats, and if we were to fill every single one, every Lord's Day we would have no more than 72. The plans for our new building would more than double the capacity and enable us to grow to a point where we can be stable financially and even be able to help other churches. One of the things that we want to, to be is a church that is able to look beyond itself for the sake of the advancement of the kingdom of God. We believe that this new building can help us get there. And so we are praying that God would provide for us the funds needed to build a new building, that we would grow to fill it, and that one day we would even be able to plant a church ourselves. As you know, doing ministry here in the Bay Area, this is a very dark place. Uh, there is a great need for the light of the gospel to shine, particularly in this place, uh, through the preaching of the word. And so if you want to support us and to, to support our efforts to see this new building built, please consider giving a financial gift to this end. You can give by sending us a check with building fund in the memo line. Our address can be found on our website. You can also give by Zelle by sending the money to nc.opcssf.treasurer at gmail.com with building fund in the memo line. May God bless you with a greater knowledge of his word and zeal for his name. Thank you.